welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 672. I'm Richard Jarrett in the UK. Joining me as ever over in the States is Jim McDowell. Jim, how are you doing? Uh, a little jet lag from going to uh, Coda. Uh, the US is a big country, so I have to fly to get there. Um, it was good. It was fun to be back at the track. It was. It felt so good to go there and, and you know walk in to it. It felt like home. Um, like my second home. Cause I spent a lot of time as a kid at the racetracks too. The first thing that I, th- that I noticed when I walked in was my God, eight or nine Moto three bikes are super loud when they're together. <laughs> <laughs> Way louder than what I remember that being, or I've just gotten that much older since the last time I was at a track. Take your pick on that one. Then it was like that whole, that that whiff of burnt racing fuel kind of comes wafting over you. And it's like, I'm back. You, you remember how like, <laughs> I don't know, remember how like uh, as, as a kid, we had uh, like uh, ditto machines that copied tests and stuff. And your teacher would bring them in and you'd, you'd want to sniff them and get that hit <laughs> off of it. It's like, that's what it felt yeah. like for me. But yeah, yeah it was cool. Uh, had some cool conversations with some, with some people. Um, a big shout out to uh, Kirk. Captain Kirk, who literally is a captain, he was a, was a pilot for Delta. He was retired. He happened to be on my flights back home, and it was his first time at a MotoGP race with his boy, and they had a great time, and we talked the whole way back, and he was a great guy. So hopefully you're listening, Kirk, and uh, you know, let's just get on into it. Yeah, it, I had the same experience at Silverstone, really. It's, it's, with COVID and stuff, you kind of forget the thrill. Uh, having missed a, a year or two don't you and it's it's mm-hmm. so thrilling to be back uh, at the racetrack yeah it's it's like an over your senses are just overwhelmed with what's going on and it just was there oh it's like one thing that made me mad is like at coda everybody likes to talk about turn one because you're going uphill and then everybody likes to talk about the s's that sort of follow that and then they kind of then start to talk about that uh what is it uh you know they might mention the 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 heavy braking at the end of the backstretch which is like turn 12 but then people will also talk a lot about the turn 16 17 18 that they got to loop the three apexes together back into 19 and and that's all well and good but my favorite part of the track is 7 8 9 10 where they go up and over the hill and back down and usually we can walk back there and watch from that perspective and that's where i like to watch qualifying from and because it sees who's got the commitment because as you come over that hill you can tell who's on and who's not and it's very visual but we couldn't get back there this year because they're building a temporary grandstand there for the formula one race which is a few weeks from now there Mm. so there was it was fenced off you could get back in there and i was livid (laughs) about that (laughs) because for the first time there was a stand there because when we first came in it's like on the absolutely far opposite side of where we come in to get into coda and i'm like oh we got to get over there tomorrow that thing looks like it's about 20 10 15 feet up above the ground so now ooh, you can see everything as opposed to just seeing everything up to the hill or being on the other side of the hill and watching everything come down the hill you could watch all of it together and i was really excited about that because i think that that section of the track is really really cool but that's my only complaint Okay, I mean, (laughs) I guess there's one or two conversations about the future of Kota, which we'll get into a little bit later on. Um, Before we do, and before we get into the news, um, just a a little bit of housekeeping. Um, 
a few system glitches this end. We, we are compiling some information to bring all of our listeners up to date in terms of subscribers and people contributing through Patreon and so on. So we will bring that information, try to get up to date. But as ever, thank you to everybody that's contributing on a regular basis. It, it, it really helps the show. Um, Jim, should we get straight into some news? Because there's quite a lot to talk about uh, this week. Ton. Yeah, well, let's start it. So I guess we'll start off at the top of it. It's a, The track was incredibly bumpy at Coda. It's never been billiard table smooth at Coda, but it was so bad that I think Quattraro called it a motocross track and a joke. Ben Yaya said it was terrible and not world championship level. And it's like, oh, okay, wow, just what I really need on this one, guys. We have all this. And honestly, where we were, where we were standing, or where I was standing, I really couldn't tell that it was that bumpy because you get those head shakes and whatnot with those bikes and especially because you're up and downhill which helps to unload the front end loads the front end and you get these shakes so i didn't think it was that bad when i was able to watch it back on tv yeah it was really bad and there was there was a talk of a strike i think uh, alicia spargaro said that, that, that there's no way we should ride and that if it was wet it was going to be literally impossible to ride in so like wow that was pretty ballsy to say that um the the other thing is there's an auto auto sport article that was written about it and the the interesting thing was that they they did they talked to the same people who repaved silverstone after the the silverstone debacle yeah i guess i guess silverstone was really bumpy i always thought it was just a drainage issue but i guess they put the asphalt down and it was really bumpy and in the article, they said the guys who did that said, hey, look, you got to find a good contractor that's local that understands everything about that area and what you're working with. And then they, they combine that with their expertise and they put down a smooth surface. And so everyone is calling for the track to be completely repaved before, we, before they come back or they, they won't come back. And... In the Autosport article, you know, they're talking about how there was, like, Coda had recently, and they just said recently, they didn't tell you when, but had come into, like, $100 million that had been, that the track had gotten. Now, I don't know where this money came from, it was never said, but there was, like, there was usually, like, some state fund and some federal money that was given to the state because of, it's like, a, it's an economic development area kind of a thing. I don't quite understand all that, but either way, either way, there was supposed to be, like, $100 million, and I'm sitting there... Once I read that, I started thinking, what the crap have you been spending it on? Because if you look at Coda as an infrastructure, the pavement where you walk, where the fans are, it's there's cracked concrete with big chunks missing out of it. There, there's you know paved walking paths that kind of take you to different areas of the racetrack. They're all cracked and crumbly and look in disarray. I realize that the place is like 10 or 11 years old, but wow, there was just, I'm like, if you had this money, what you know, you, you, you know, as as as, as uh, what's the word for that lawyers as litigious as what the U.S. is, I would mm. expect that if you stepped in one of these cracks or you know some of this asphalt that was crumbling, if you were walking on the side of it and twisted your ankle or fell down and you know, uh, worst case scenario, snapped the leg, you'd be suing Coda for it. And I don't know why they haven't put any effort into. The, into the it seems like they just didn't put any effort into any of it except for now they did repave some pieces of the track and even those were bad they said the bumps were bad there 
I, so I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't want to lose this race in the U.S. at all. I, I love the track. It's a very technical, it's a very challenging track. I think most riders like the track if it was not as bumpy. But then there isn't a track in the U.S. that doesn't, it isn't bumpy. <laughs> I mean, you know, where of, else is it going to go? I mean, well, other than Kota, yeah. Well, that was the question. The only other place that it could it could technically go, it could technically go back to Laguna Seca, but Laguna Seca is not going to put out the money to bring Moto Two and Moto Three with it. So let's scratch that off the list. The other, the big talk was that it was going to go back to Indianapolis Motor Speedway and race next year. I'm like, Mm-mm, not going to happen. Not in April because that's too close to the month of May. So there's not going to be enough time for them to convert back to the oval after MotoGP leaves, and you know. Indianapolis Motor Speedway is owned by a different group of people now. It was always owned by the by the Holman family, but they do no longer own it. They sold it to Roger Penske, who is of the IndyCar fame. He had done some Formula One, but he is the man in charge. And it's like, uh, Roger doesn't do anything that isn't going to make him money, and I don't think that him paying sanctioning fees and paying for the freight uh, to get MotoGP and all the equipment there, which is what they were doing at Indy, isn't going to fly with him. So, nah, I think you can cross that one off the list. Now, a lot of people suggested if you wanted a smooth racetrack was to go to Road America, which is in Wisconsin in the United States. And I'm like, that isn't going to happen because of the fact that there is literally no infrastructure around it. It's little itty-bitty uh, inns and bed and breakfasts in that part of the country. There isn't the infrastructure to have a big hotel to bring, I don't know, how many people you figure come, Rich, from Dorna and whatnot? But would you oh. say a thousand people show up or more? Uh, minimum, minimum. I, I don't have any idea. Probably a couple of thousand, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's you, a good number. You And you figure all the teams. Circus. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no garages at all at Road America. So it would be in a tent again, and no one liked that because they did that at Laguna for a while, and everybody hated that. So they're not going to spend that kind of money to – upgrade that facility to get to that level and i don't know if and i think you would have to take the track and you would have to modify it significantly to create significant runoff areas that they're going to want to be an fim sanctioned race track it yeah. so that's out of the question too so if we don't have gp at road america would be awesome but oh, the, wall, the walls are just too close they are so too close just, i've raced it yeah. I think I always thought the walls were too close on a, on a 600 Honda at a club race. So <laughs> if I'm thinking they're too close, it either means like I am a true wussy boy or, or, you know, they really are too, too close. close. So they need yeah. to move. So, I mean, I, I saw the same uh, or heard some comments uh, from the English uh, contractor that, that repaved uh, Silverstone uh, clearly that you did. And I think the problem with Silverstone with the, when it was resurfaced, they had kind of almost like little mini rills in the tarmac that were holding the water. And because that particular weekend we had such heavy rainfall, and I'm thinking that was 2018, I think that that cooled off race. So the, the water just basically couldn't drain. And then a new this new contractor came in and just said the, the tarmac's just wrong. So they redid it. And I read this same thing that you've seen, which that they were saying that it's not to do with all of this underlying geological activity, although that obviously does play some part in terms of moving the, the structure around. But his contention was, or her contention, I'm not quite sure who it was that said it, but was that it's just a bad paving job and that it needs to be completely redone by a professional 
racetrack paving company. So it's a bit contentious, I guess. But I mean, looking back, thinking about Cota, there's always been issues with bumps. And I remember a couple of seasons ago, they were kind of skimming, almost grinding yeah. the top layer off the track at the end of the back straight, weren't they? And that was creating all sorts of problems with masses of dust flying around everywhere. So it's been a, a bit of a horror show for, for quite a while now. And clearly this year, it's kind of reaching its... Uh, Reach a new high and low, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's exactly very nicely put. Yeah, and uh, as you said, watching it on TV, you could literally see the bikes airborne at various points. And the only time I can recall that having happened in the past was before they modified Turn 1 at Laguna when MotoGP first went there. Yeah. And they were kind of taken off o- over the hump on the main straight, um, which was raising eyebrows. And that was back in, what, 20, 2005, 2006? Yeah, 2005 was when the first time they came back, yeah. I know because I sat in the traffic jam for like about eight hours to get out. Nice, nice. So, yeah, clearly there is a problem at Okota. But as you say, if I mean, if all this money's uh, been thrown at the track, then you know, questions have to be asked, I guess, as to where it's going. Yeah, I I think that I would I would keep my eye on Autosport because I'm pretty sure they're probably going to uh, be digging into trying to figure out where all that's going. But who knows? All right, let's go to the uh, second thing up here. Uh, Fanati announced that he was going to speed up GP in 2022, which means he's moving up to the Moto2 class. Your thoughts about that, Rich? Well, I'm pleased. Uh, he has a very checkered past, as we know, but I think uh, as a guy on the road, literally on the road to redemption, he's done you know a good job for himself. There's been a, a you know lots of really vitriolic kind of commenting going on on social media. Uh, over the course of the last week since this news that he was going back up emerged. But, um, you know, I, I think he's earned the right to go up again. You know, he's kept his nose clean. He, he clearly took on board his personal issues that, that led to him getting into that situation. And it was one of several things that had happened through his career. Um, but since then, by and large, I think he, he's done a, a good job and Quite frankly, as we always say, this is a results and a merit-based business. And, and on his results, he has earned the right to go up to, to Moto2. So personally, and it's, it is purely just my personal opinion, of course, but I think he deserves it. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy for the guy. And I hope he does well this time. Yeah, I'm a bit indifferent to it. I, I'm not caring really one way or the other. I will tell you a funny story from Coda about Fanati. Sunday night, my buddy and I go to dinner. And we go to the restaurant by the hotel. It's a chain restaurant. It's called Chili's. And we walk in and we sit down. And I'm like, I look over. And there's a bunch of Max Delgrada, Husqvarna guys sitting. And I'm like, wait a second. That's Roman Fanati too. So Fanati and his crew were eating dinner. So we sat down and they were, you know, sort of across the table from us. And I was, I was shocked at actually how small, not small, that's the wrong word, how short Fanati is. I stand five foot eight. Fanati can only be like five, six, five, five. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's a small person. So I was like, Whoa, that's kind of wild. So as it would be that Monday morning, we were flying out and we go back to the airport and we drop the rental car off and we're going through line to go to security. And sure enough, guess who's in front of us in the security line, Fanati and this crew. <laughs> it's kind of weird that we, you bang into them twice. You bump into these guys twice with it. And you know, 12 hours or something, you know, so it's like kind of a shocker, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, 
So I was like, there's always something weird like that that happens. We always wind up somewhere where we see a bunch of people or something. It's some some funny always happens to us. While we're it's, there. it's weird in the MotoGP paddock because you have such limited access or, or zero access as a, yeah. as a regular punter to all of the riders and all of the classes, really, for that matter. Um, I was, as I'm going to mention in a, in a while, I was I was at BSB at Donington at the weekend, completely open paddock there. Uh, you can walk up to the back of the garages uh, at Donington Open Paddock, and it's so great just to be able to mingle with the riders and the race officials, you know, some of the people you recognise. I, I think it's a major failing of, of the MotoGP paddock, is it, it has become far too exclusive over the years. Uh, the, the riders, the stars, the people that you're paying to see, they're, they're far too remote. And, and I really think Dorna or whoever has, has you know, uh, sway over this really ought to try and address that particular issue anyway that, that, yeah that I, 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 compl- I, I completely agree there. i completely agree with you oh so some more news here oh well, since finati is going up uh up there um the question that we had from previous was where was artigas going to go oh as soon as i knew that finati was going up my thought was hey artigas slides right over there um artigas has looked pretty good the last few races so i thought okay that's gonna be a good idea but it comes out that he that uh, is Artigas, is going to a new Moto3 team, the CF Moto team. And CF Moto is a Chinese manufacturer of motorcycles. And they're trying to broaden their brand by racing. And they're starting out with a Moto3 bike. And he's going to be partnered by Carlos Tatai. There's some pictures floating on the internet of the team. If you Google uh, CF Moto, uh, G- Moto3 team, you'll see the pictures. What's interesting to me, I looked at the bike, is that it has very much the look of like the KTM or the Husqvarna or whatever you want to call them. But what's really jumped off the page at me was they're using one very large single disc rotor on the front of the bike instead of the more standard smaller two disc brakes on the front of the bikes. I That's interesting to me. Now, again, this might have been a pre-photo thing and it's just something they had on there and they might not do that but i remember long ago 125s used to have one disc on one side of the bike way back in the 80s and then it kind of switched and went to the two discs somewhere and towards the end of that which would have been around me I want to say like 2008 or 2009 was the last 125 season, and it sort of got carried over to the Moto3 bike. So I'm I'm interested to see what they do because it was always the fact that the braking force wasn't even if it was on one side of it. Now, from the picture, it's at an angle. Now, maybe that rotor is more inset to the center line of the bike, and maybe the hub is kind of curved around it a little bit. It didn't look like that, but pictures can be deceiving. It could have been Photoshopped. But anyway, another team to root for, I guess. Yeah, well, it's great to have another team coming in. Um, certainly Artigas, as we said in the last episode, should not be kind of exiled from Moto3 because he's, you know, fast and, and he's been doing well more recently. So uh, wherever he lands, hopefully it's a, it's, it's a good quality bike. But uh, as you say, I mean, replacing Fanati in, in Max's team would be an obvious, easy slot in for him. Uh, I haven't seen the news that you're mentioning, um, so I'll go ahead and have a look at that. But uh, yeah, I personally hope he, he you know gets a decent ride in, in Moto3 because he's definitely earned it. Agreed there. Um, moving on. Maverick Vinales did not race his Aprilia in Austin because of the death of his cousin at the Hereth round of the World 300 Supersport race. 
I don't think anybody can blame him for not being there. I certainly hold nothing against him. That was tragic circumstance. I get the impression that he was very close with his cousin. Um, and it's just a terrible shame of what happened there. So in the results, if you're looking for where he was, well, that's what had gone on. Uh, this next thing is your bit, Rich. What's going on with the Patrona Shamaha? Yeah, well, I've been um, following, uh, and we haven't really talked about it on here, and it's probably something that we'll hang over to next year, but um, I've been following quite closely this year, having not really followed it that closely for the last few seasons, it's true, but World Superbikes. Uh, and the main reason for that is that, uh, and absolutely nothing against Jonathan Ray, I mean, he's been the absolute standout. He's been the kind of the Mark Marquez of the World Superbike um paddock for the last few years but this year he has a very stern challenge on his hands which is coming from top rack uh, rasgati oglu uh, on the yamaha the races at last weekend um in, in portimao were some of the best world superbike races i have ever seen and i've been following world superbikes fairly closely since right back into the sort of the heydays of aaron slight and carl fogarty and kajinski and and so on so the, the the Saturday race one was one of the very, very best races I've ever seen. And I really encourage anybody that has access to go and look at that race to watch that from start to finish because it was an absolute barnstormer. But it did get me thinking about uh, Razgati Oglu because uh, without telling too much about what happened at the end of the weekend, the, 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 the points is, are still quite tight. Uh, and so it's by no means a foregone conclusion that Johnny Ray or uh, Top Rack is going to win the championship uh, but but Toprak certainly has a lot of momentum uh, in that championship uh, and, and I think it's he is probably odd, just about odds on favourite to get it now Jim you might be able to sort of recall what you heard or, or read around the time but if you remember back in Assen when Garrett Gerloff jumped onto the Patronus bike as a substitute I can't quite remember why one of the riders wasn't on it at that time if it was injury or what it was but anyway my recollection was that Top Rack had been offered the ride and turned it down because he didn't feel right. a, a single that... race was really going to be a, a good shop window kind of scenario for him. Mm. And then in the, the weeks that followed, because he was having a very good uh, season so far in World Superbike, although the second half of the season has been absolutely outstanding compared to the first half of the season, which was just merely good, he was offered the the second Yamaha in what we currently call Patronus. It's not going to be called that next year, as we know now. But And he and his management turned it down. Now, I believe the reason why they turned it down was because it was not going to be a, a 2022 spec factory Yamaha bike. It was going to be the kind of one or two-year-old model. So he turned it down. And, and I, I suspect that's possibly how Cal Crutchlow ended up on the bike as well. Although I guess you would argue that in the heat of the, the World Superbike Championship, top rack could not have come across for two or three races to do that but i just have a feeling in my mind and call me a conspiracy theorist that the reason why we don't know what's going on with that last slot on next year's grid in moto gp i'm just wondering if uh, a new deal has been done behind the scenes that says if top rack wins the world superbike championship this year why would he stay there he is clearly a, a massive massive talent and if you watch the races from last weekend, again, on display are unbelievable bike control. And he's been doing that basically all, all season long. He needs to be in MotoGP. And I just wonder whether or not Yam the, the, the decision on that final slot in MotoGP has been held uh, 
in case he wins the World Superbike, and I just wonder if Yamaha have said, if you win it, come across and you'll have a, a factory spec bike. So, so you're thinking something a la Ben Spees. You won the world yeah. title in 2009, and you go ride for, at the time, Tech 3. That's possible. Um, I think Morbidelli wasn't on the bike because he hurt his knee. And that's right, why, okay. they, and they quickly had to draft somebody onto the bike. And they couldn't get, they brought Dixon up, I thought, right? I can't. Yeah, well, for, it, Aston, for Aston, I think they wanted Top Rack on the bike, but he refused, yeah. I believe. Yeah, he refused, and then he brought Dixon off. up or whatever. Yeah, right now yeah, somebody's yeah, screaming, no, yeah. you idiots, it was this. So <laughs> we, we <laughs> probably should think about that. But yeah, that, uh, hmm. I mean, from what I've seen, the snippets of World Superbike that I can get to and have access to see, you're right. He is. He does seem to be a very talented, very skilled rider. And, you know, he's taken on Johnny Ray, who is no slouch whatsoever. And he's put him to the test. So you you, you got to think it's, it's for me, it's sort of like that a la Matt Malad and Ben Spees thing that happened in America years ago, you know. Matt Maladin was the king. Here comes the newcomer, which is Ben Spees. And Ben Spees basically beat the living snark crap out of Maladin to win a few titles and then showed up at the world and said, look what I can do. So I would love to see it. Don't know. But again, maybe we just need to keep our you know eyes and ears open and see what happens. Because, yeah, if that's – nobody can – if nobody's in that seat yet, that just seems really weird. We keep hearing that Darren Binder's the guy, but – why haven't they announced it yet? I think the longer it goes on, the less likely but the way that, that would, is to happen. But why would you give Bender a seat? He has not... He had a strong start to the season, but he has done nothing. I mean, he looked better this past weekend, but there has been nothing going at all for him. I, um, I can't see any... Why they would take that level of a risk even though they've got Davizioso on the other bike confirmed so they've got the experience there but I, I don't I, w I really don't understand why Binder would get the seat as you, as you say Jim based on his performance through the season and if you look at Top Rack I mean he is absolutely a Mark Marquez because he is bending the bike to his will he has yeah. unbelievable bike control and Although there are certain riders, um, Ray to some extent, and certainly Scott Redding has been quite vocal, I think unfairly, but again, that's just my view and I'm not the one on the bike, but he is unbelievably aggressive as well. Not out of control, but if he's a little bit like Bayless always used to say, if you get overtaken, you take him straight back. And he really is, you know, a guy that he just needs to be in MotoGP. So, and his performance in the second half of the season in World Superbike has been so outstanding that I just wonder if Yamaha have had a change of heart with him. And whilst they weren't willing to commit to a full factory spec bike, maybe they will find the money to make it happen because he he needs to be there. Interesting. Um, I don't remember, but I I thought it's somewhere about now that the factories have to finalize factory spec bikes to build enough parts, pieces, whatever, to get it to testing in February. So time's running out on that. Yeah. But mm. if, if Top Rack doesn't go, 
then who are they going to put on there? That's the thing. It's like, I mean... Well, there's only one person that comes to my mind that would be an obvious fit. Uh, and I, I'm in the absence of the conspiracy theory, it, it doesn't make any sense to me that this hasn't already happened. And that would be Ika Lekawona. Because he yeah, has had... Even, even like good, good, well, I think he's had a pretty good, you know, second half of the season in MotoGP. Yes. Uh, riding a bike, which is quite well known to be a tricky bike to ride. Um, Agreed. He's... He's arguably been the best or second best of all of the KTM riders through the, through the course of the second half of the season. And on a Yamaha, I think he'd be probably pretty outstanding, given that that bike's characteristics are known to be more gentle, let's say, compared to, say, certainly the KTM. Right. But I thought Lickawana was going to a Honda in the World Superbike. Was that rumor or did he, did he actually sign? See, I'm now I'm lost in where that train of thought I took the point of just checking on the World Superbike newsfeed tonight, and as far as I can see, there is still no official confirmation of what HRC are doing next year. Now, it is That's true that all man. the rumour is that Lekawona and, and, and Xavi Vieje are going to be riding those bikes next year, and that would make a lot of sense, but, but Lekawona, I think, has done more than enough to, to justify staying in, in the MotoGP category next year. But there is only one bike now available you know, that he could possibly ride, which is that, that uh, Petronas bike. Hmm. Well, I don't know. We're, 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 we'll see. We're, we're, yeah, it's a, it's, we're going to have to wait and see on that one. Uh, let's finish up the news here with a couple more things. The 2020 provisional, underline that word provisional, put it in bold and italics, uh, but it looks like we're going to go back to basically a normal schedule. We are going to travel the world next year as opposed to just Europe and the Middle East and the one race in America, it's 21 rounds. So two more than what we had this year. We'll start in early March. Qatar will go to a new round in Indonesia. That circuit, if you haven't seen it, the layout is intriguing. It's an intriguing layout, that circuit. I will give you that. Then we're going to go to Argentina, which we haven't been to in two years, to the United States for Coda again, provided it's repaved. Who knows what's going to happen there? Stay tuned. On to Portugal, which has earned a spot on the calendar. Thank you very much, Dorna and the FIM, because that track should stay there all the time. Well on deserved. To, yep. Exactly. Well deserved. Then on to Spain, on to France, on to Italy, Catalonia, Germany, Netherlands. Kind of sounds like the middle normal schedule that we have. But then we go from the Netherlands, we go to Finland, to the new track, the new Kimi Ring, which if you look at that track's layout, that track looks very interesting as well. It does. So yep. new yep. tracks are always fun. So there's two new tracks that we can talk about next year. Then we go back to the normal sort of after the after the summer break kind of racing to Great Britain to British summer at Silverstone, Austria, San Marino, Aragon, off to Japan, which we haven't been to in two years, to Thailand. To Australia, Malaysia, Valencia. So you get that triple header there of of um, races and finishing it off in Valencia in the first week of November, which I think is an ambitious schedule. I'm going to wager that things are going to change. I, With everything that's going on in Australia, I can't see Australia being on this. I can see it being on the schedule, but if they actually make it there, I will be duly impressed. I will also be impressed if they actually go to Argentina as well. Those two are suspect in my mind, as well as Japan. Japan but, would be the other, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, this is going to move around, folks. I think it's, but we have something to look forward to 
21 rounds, two new tracks. There we go. And and Great Britain brought forward by two weeks, so that it should hopefully be a little bit warmer as well, because <laughs> because normally the Silverstone race is at the end of uh, end of August, so it's good to see that that has come forward a little bit. Yep, yep, that's a good one. All right, so that's basically the news. Um, there is one more news item that's there. Uh, Skyler is going to be up next. He has some information on an i racing series that he and Jules Chisek are doing. So you'll hear that next. Hello, Motopotters. Skyler here. Are you one of the listeners that also dabbles in the world of iRacing? If so, please come join former Motopod host Jules Chisek and myself for the Thursday Night Challenge Series, which is run every Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're going to be doing everything from fixed racing, with something like Mazdas, all the way to GT3 races, and we might even do some endurance races down the road. Whatever it is, we'll probably have something that's going to fit. We have a championship, and we may even have some things that we can go ahead and put up as championship rewards. And all that good stuff just depends on participation, how many people can get over it. But the races are going to be hosted on private servers for the Thursday Night Challenge, which means we will only allow access to those who we add, so we don't get any randoms in there to screw up your iRacing experience. There will be some AI drivers to fill out the grid if needed as well. If you're interested, you can add me on Discord, and then I will add you to our server. To find me on Discord, I am AvoVoom, hashtag 1711. So Avo is spelled A, V is in Victor, O is in Oscar, V is in Victor, O is in Oscar, O is in Oscar, M as in Mary, hashtag 1711. Or you can simply send me a friend request on iRacing. That's Skyler, S-K-Y-L-E-R, VicRoy, V-I-C-K-R-O-Y. Alrighty, folks. See you on the virtual track. Zoom, zoom. All right. Thanks for the information, Skyler. Sounds interesting. And if anybody wants to join in, you know how to get a hold of him. So we're going to move on now to, let's do it backwards. Let's go to the MotoGP race and talk about that first, Rich. Um, one of the things I'll take away from, from the, at least qualifying, and I don't know if it was this way for you when you were at, you were at Silverstone. But I found it very hard to keep track of who's going fast. And that 15 minutes, which feels like an eternity when I'm watching it on TV, is not an eternity when you are standing there at the racetrack. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I suppose it depends partly what facilities you have there. Phil, everybody has their kind of MO when they go to a race weekend. I'm kind of curious to know what yours are. But um, Oh, okay, yeah. For, for so, Silverstone because I generally go to Silverstone MotoGP every year, I tend to, on Friday, not really take too much notice of what times people are putting in. I just, I kind of walk the track a couple of times during the day and just take in the sights. And then for Saturday, I, I tend to sort of start to park myself a bit more close to some of the big screens so that you can see a little bit more what's going on in terms of the, you know, the, the, the left-hand side of the screen where you can see all the positions and so on. So I tend to try and follow it a little bit more in terms of watching on the track but also keeping an eye with a pair of binoculars if needs be uh, on the big diamond screens as well so that's kind of how i do it but as, as you say it, it is very different when you're track side in terms of it feels longer uh, to me normally and if you do have that detachment from the tv screens it's, it's kind of nice in a way it's a little bit like they all say in britain what listening to the cricket on the radio you can't see it so you kind of concentrate more because your, your senses are are kind of constrained a little bit so when you're just watching from trackside you tend to just take a bit more notice i guess about what's going on but without necessarily knowing who's quick and who's not yeah well for me we always we we 
just because of you know vacation that we have allotted to us, we tend to fly early Friday morning, so we don't get to the track until noon. Like we drop in, and literally from the airport in Austin to the track is twelve minutes. So we just go straight in, grab some food, go in, and we usually go to our seats that we have in turn fifteen, and we watch the second part of practice. And again, don't really really paying too much attention to anything at that point. Saturday is the walk around day for us that we take in everything that we can go to different points. And like I said earlier, I like the seven, eight, nine, ten section of the track. That's where I want to be for qualifying. And again, there's a really nice screen that you can look at there to see what's going on, which is just across the track from you. Um, it's almost impossible to hear what's going on at Coda. It, it, it isn't because of the length of track and it takes, you know, so long for a bike to come back around, but the track is, is very long, like, like a paperclip long, but the distance between the sides of the paperclip are really short and that's kind of what what coda is so it also sits in a bit of a bowl kind of because you have the uphill turn one and the s's that's all a hillside basically so the sound reverberates and stays in there from the bikes and so you know you're there's a part in the center that's probably maybe only 150 200 feet between where the bikes are going by on the back stretch and where one of the turns are for the s's there so the noise of the bikes makes it really hard to hear what's going on and then yeah for whatever reason they have jonathan green always talking which is enough to just make me want to zone out entirely because he can't pronounce anything correctly <laughs> I, I don't i can't pronounce names correctly either okay but i, I at least try very hard to listen to uh matt bird and uh, who's the other guy rich um uh, jonathan day well, his co-commentator co <laughs> yeah yeah, I think it's, uh, I think Steve, it's Day, Steve, 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 Steve Day, Steve Day, Matt yeah. Bird, and Simon Cooper. I at least try to pay attention to how they pronounce the names, so I don't sound super stupid. But it's 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 like, did you not watch a MotoGP race at all before you decided to talk about it? Like, I, I don't mind that Jeff Andretti is there as sort of like a color guy, and that he doesn't get names right. I, I'm okay with that. It's not his sport. He's passionate about motorcycles, but it's not his sport. And I don't really care that Schwanz doesn't say it right either. It doesn't bug me because Schwanz is there as the color guy who really knows, and he's the guy who helped design the track. So I don't really care there. But yeah, he gets a free pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah he gets, <laughs> they get free pass. Jonathan Green, like no. I suppose all the all the tech savvy younger people listening to the show are saying, why the hell aren't you guys just using the live timing screen feed on your phones and stuff to know what's because going on? Because it's behind. It's behind by a good ten to fifteen seconds. Right. And so yeah, okay. it's like, yeah, you, you, you can do that, but it puts me out of sync because what's happening isn't matching what's coming to my ear. So I have to just sort of, I, I can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. So you expect me to watch what's happening live and listen to something 20 seconds behind? Mm, not happening. I have <laughs> to say it. as well, that, you know, when I'm at Silverstone, for example, not, not, not just at MotoGP, any, any sort of bike or car race for that matter, but I, I just love to hang around on a, on a corner and just watch what each competitor is doing uh, and looking at the little things that they're doing that, that just differentiate the, the the merely very fast people from the really super quick people because there are no slow people out there let's let's be absolutely clear about that but that is you true. can you can tell that all the little nuances and little style things that they do you know like some riders do the leg dangle some don't you know and it, it does it changes the way the bikes behave and it's so fascinating from a kind of raincoaty nerd point of view which i class myself as i'll do the same thing i watch how they run yeah yeah i watch their lines it's like 
you know, and I have a friend who I brought into the sport and we go to these together and I'm always like, look, watch this, watch when Marquez comes over the hill. Now look at the difference between where he is and where Quattraro is and where Bender is and all, and he's like, they're in the same spot. No, they are not in the same spot, you know, mm. and it's that nerd thing. And if you've been in it, you know how these guys are playing with millimeters of different lines and it's and that means everything to their bike and their setup and all the other stuff yeah but you know as as qualifying went for moto gp i think the question was could marquez get pole going into it he had been fast uh all weekend he had that smile back on his face that we haven't seen for a long time and that little glint in his eye that hey th- there's something special here and i can i can do this now they did test at San Marino previously. Oh, we'll get to that. Let's go to that later. We're, we're at qualifying. But they did test at San Marino, so maybe they might have found something to make the bike better because Marquez is definitely was not going after a toe from anyone at all. He was his own man doing his own thing, which was good. Um, you know, Qualifying went through, and basically what happened is – you know, he had the pole. He was right there. Martin was challenging. Quattraro was challenging. And Benyaya all challenged for that top spot. Eventually, Benyaya got it all and was a, the fastest man. Followed by Quattraro. Marquez got the inside of the front row. So he's on the front row. He got off that fourth position qualifying thing that he's doing. Then Martin Nakagami, who was also fast for a lot of qualifying and, and for the uh, free practice four, whose quick was there in fifth. Then it was Zarco, Rins. Mir, um, Luca Marini, Miller, who complained about a bad tire performance, I think he mm, complained mm. about. Like, and then it was Bender and Aspargaro. So that was that was a second qualifying session. It's kind of hard for me to keep track of where everything was, just because I'm there. I'm not taking notes when I'm standing at the racetrack. You know, so. I, you know, I watched it, watched the Dorna coverage, and then I rewatched it to make some notes for this. And it, it, you know, none of these sessions were particularly eye-opening in terms of what was going on. Yeah. Uh, Luca Marini in ninth, I thought was a a very good yeah. effort on his on his part. Um, but for the for the most part, that there was nothing too sensational going on, other than the fact that Alicia Spargo just kept crashing all weekend long. Yep, he couldn't stop. Yeah, I think the only thing that's out of place is Nakagami. If you look at it, you would expect sort of everybody where they are. You would yeah. you would want to put Nakagami maybe in tenth or eleventh, and put Miller in at fifth. It's but that was the only part that was that was there. Mm. So. Uh, let's talk about the race. It started, uh, oh, it was brutally hot. It was 90 degrees Fahrenheit uh, when the race took place, and the track temperature was well over, I think, 100 there. So I think, yeah, I don't know, that's what, in the 30s or, you know, high, tw- very high 20s, yep. low 30s, um, no, I think, centigrade, yeah. so yeah. somewhere around there. And Marquez took off. He got the whole shot. He was followed by Quattro. He was followed by Benyaya. Those guys were kind of, kind of, duking it out a little bit when they came around to the bat into the back straight and it was a breaking duel marquez won that duel uh he was right there quattro again second the fight was and then mark kind of started to just eke out little bits of time as he went around as everybody was saying throughout the weekend you had to ride perfect because of the bumps and all that and it was going to be who made the least amount of mistakes during that time and somewhere about four or five laps into it marquez found a rhythm he he had a level of time that was not near 
or sorry, was much greater. Know, how do you say this? He was just faster for a longer period of time than what Quattararo could hang on to, what Benyaya could hang on to uh, as they went through that. It, it was interesting because he just kept chipping away at it. It was a few tenths every lap and he just chipped, 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 chipped. And, you know, basically at that point, Marquez ran off with the race and cruised home to a victory of like 6.3 seconds, I think. And I read in Matt Oxley's article about the race that that was his second biggest gap of victory at Coda, putting into perspective that maybe he's back. <laughs> so who knows? Um, Quattro just held second. He didn't, he was ahead of um, Banyaya, and that's really all that mattered to him. It was a tactical race. Tactical race from Quattro, right? I, I, if Mark Marquez wins, I don't care. I'm riding for a championship, and I have three rounds after this one. The biggest thing for Quattro was take home as many points as possible. Do not throw the bike on the ground and hurt yourself. That was his. That was his mo. I think it was. I was shocked though that Quattro rode as hard as he did in qualifying to qualify where he did. He really does put in some one lap wonders and it's kind of like what Kenny Roberts Jr. said you can ride any piece of shit fast for one lap and oh boy did I mean it was a bucking bronco rodeo uh, that Yamaha was going every which way but straight sometimes and and, and he to be fair to him he defended that second place in the early parts of the race yes, quite he hard did. on a couple of occasions as well so I mean he was definitely looking to haul the points uh this race but yeah. as you say Jim I mean he was it was a tactical race for him Finish second. Don't give a flying what's it about Marquez, you know, who was in a rhythm. They often say about Coach, it's one of these tracks, they call it a technical track, don't they? And, and which means it basically is. that you have to get into the rhythm. You can't afford to make mistakes because if you do, you lose a lot of time. And we saw this in the Moto2 race as well. It was about getting out the front, just being metronomic, you know, with, with your, with your rhythm. Yeah, that, it's that kind of racetrack, isn't it? It is. So, um, it is. Yeah. So, so Quattro did a superb job really and yeah i mean he's looking looking unbeatable in the championship i think ben yaya did his thing too i mean he did as best he could to to you know he was another four another four seconds behind um quattro at the end um Renz had the best ride i thought he he came through the pack the suzuki's kind of tried to charge up to the front as they went through um and and mir was kind of with him and then mir kind of fell off and then we had Martin sort of took up the mantle of that and you know really no one was kind of watching that part of the race it wasn't they weren't that entertaining Bastianini would be sixth which I thought was a pretty decent ride for Bastianini to be where he was then Miller was seventh then Mir was eighth and then that's where you get a bit of controversy because after the cool down lap Miller pulls up alongside Mir and you know gives him the old finger wave in the in the visor and this you know you don't do this and that kind of a thing and they had a war of words and Miller was mad because basically Mir stood him up at one of the turns I don't remember which one stood him up pretty big and Miller is tired of that crap because that's how Mir has to ride because he, he has to maximize corner speed. It's really, at Coda, you, you sit at 15, you can see 12, 13, 14, 15, and kind of into 16. Very tight corners. And you can just watch the Ducatis do not turn. And the Suzuki just carves a corner. And so you know that Mir has to do something very 
rough or he has to get his elbows out is probably the better way to put that. And the, from the onboards, I kind of looked at some of that. It's not that big a deal what Mir did. Is it beyond a line? No. In reference to what kind of happened earlier in the day, maybe. But if you take it as what you've seen in MotoGP all year long, it's not that bad. Now Jack's mad because he's always on the on the wrong side of that that battle, right? Um, you know, it's always Jack getting beaten by Mir because Mir stands up in the middle of a corner. Jack, if you know he's coming, then you got to ride. You got to somehow figure out how you're going to ride differently than what you are because Mir's going to come attack you in the parts that you can't turn. So you either got to guard the inside that much more and slow down even more and then use the more acceleration of your bike or something. But, you know, Mir didn't like the fact that Jack kind of put the finger in his face. He's like, hey, you've done this to enough people. And he's right because Miller has done that to people in Moto3. He's done it in MotoGP when he's been there. So I looked at it as a racing incident, and it was just two guys that were kind of there. I think Miller was a bit more on edge because of what had happened earlier in the day. We'll get on to that because that's the main talking point of this podcast. So let's finish out where we were there. Um, Bender had a nice ride to ninth. He's always like the Sunday man. He's there. Aspargaro was 10th. Then Oliveira, Alex Marquez, Davicioso, who looked horribly slow on that Yamaha. I'm sorry, folks. You watch Davicioso go by and you're just like, huh. Because you can compare it directly to how Quattro goes by and you're like, you can visibly see the Quattro is five, eight miles an hour faster through most corners than what Davicioso was. Marini had a 14th, and then Rossi had a 15th on there. Um, one of the things about Rossi is, wow, um, he's riding out the season. He has no desire to be on the ground. I don't blame him, but you really... Seeing it and seeing how fast the guys at the front are, who are, I'll say half his age, just for a round number, you really realize how slow Rossi has become. And it isn't the bike. It's it's him. And, you know, fair enough. The man has done um, everything that he could for MotoGP. He's given more than what he's probably taken from MotoGP, arguably. But it was just sad to see Rossi really just kind of tooling around at the back as an afterthought, which was terrible. Yeah, well, I thought the same thing at Silverstone as well. I mean, it's a 2021 factory spec bike. Uh, you know, what's he got to ride for? I mean, he's, yeah. he's not going to get a podium, is he? Let, let's be no. quite honest. He just no. doesn't want to just doesn't want to crash and hurt himself in the last few races now. So it's it's a bit painful to watch. I mean, he did. He fell off a couple of times over the weekend. Yeah, you know, just some uh, small low sides and stuff. In, in qualifying, he certainly did. Um, yeah, bump caught him out, sort of thing. And I guess he's just thinking, you know, what? Uh, I just don't want to hurt myself. I just want to retire now. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I just want to be done. It's, it's a shame, as you say, just to see him sort of tooling around at the back. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's should have gone yeah. a couple of years ago. Anyway, I agree. Anyway, yeah. well, one of the things I want to mention: um, Nakagami crashed on either the first or the second lap at turn 12 yeah. and he picked it up he got his bike back he got it running again and everybody who was in our 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 section which is turn 15 grandstands every time nakagami came by they cheered 
And when he finally passed a few people, they cheered even louder for him. It was everybody was really cheering for him. And I just thought that was great. Um, one of the other things I'll say, and this is about every rider, every rider when they came around at the end of every session, um, they came by always a hand wave. They would stop, ride wheelies, they, you know, all kinds of stuff. They were really appreciative that there were fans in the stands and you could, you, you can see that they enjoyed themselves when the fans came back on TV, but I didn't, and I didn't really get how much they appreciate us making noise as I did until I was part of that. It was yeah. really, really fun. And it was really cool to see that, yeah. you know, they yeah. really, really enjoyed the fact that we were sitting there. Uh, again, I can, I concur with my experience at Silverstone, virtually all of the riders were, were waving and yeah, you don't know what you've lost until you, until it's gone, do you? So I suppose the fact that crowds are back now has, has kind of changed the whole atmosphere, both for riders and, for, you know, obviously for fans to be back in the stands is great. So yeah, that that's, it is a two-way thing. And this is why I think it's a shame that the paddock is so closed off in MotoGP. Um, so that would be something they could change for the better. Just, just going back to what you were saying about Nakagami, I mean, I, I think if I was him, I'd start be starting to feel a little bit shaky about 2023 with Ayagura looking so good in Moto2. I think probably there's going to come a point before very much longer when Honda sort of lose faith a bit in Nakagami. Yeah, yeah Nakagami's 30 years old too. Yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah. That, that's not old, okay? I mean, that, that is not old. Um, we can say Rossi's old, I think. That's okay. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, most guys have another five years easily. I mean, I mean we know so much more about nutrition, our fitness levels, all of that stuff that, you know, you can ride a lot longer, but you know, he, he is coming to the end of his MotoGP career. There, there is a point where that's going to stop. And he always seems to, he always seems to fall off, you know, when he's in good positions as well. That's the problem. You know, he just sort of, not for me to, to sort of say he, he bottles it. Cause I mean, he, he He's a MoGP rider, and I'm not, right. But, I, I'll never get there. But, <laughs> so I have. There's no point in me picking the stuffing out of him. I, it's just, you know, you, you armchair. That's that, what it is. You know, he's he's not a young youngster compared to most of them now, and and there are some fast Japanese coming up oh, through yeah. the lower ranks now. So yeah, that he didn't really need that that get off from a good position. I want to say one thing before we go to the uh, points, real quick. And did you see who took the winning? Trophy for the constructors. Did you notice who was up there with Marquez? Uh, oh, was it uh, the young lady data engineer? Yep. Jenny, yeah. Jenny, Jenny Anderson. Jenny. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's the first time. I mean, obviously they won at, they won at um, Saxon Ring in Santiani. Or uh, what's Marquez's crew chief? San... Oh, Santi Hernandez. Santi Hernandez. That's Santi Hernandez. Yeah. Thank you. Um, he was up there. And so Jenny was up there this time. And I go back to the fact that they found something in the front end of that motorcycle at San Marino. I think all that has to do with Jenny Anderson because I think she's one of the best suspension people in the paddock. She's probably the, in the top three or four. Look, Honda poached her. They obviously saw something in her. And I think she's, pardon the pun, coming to grips with what it takes to make that chassis work. And as a reward, she got to go up there and take that trophy, which I loved. So there, Honda found something. Now, 
have you seen any of the 2022 spy photos from that test rich of the bike mm -hmm. that bike is completely different i mean that bike different. is yeah. so yeah. radically different than what han has done in the years it's a big huge departure but we can talk about that later in a different time but quattro is out front he is on 254 points he has a 52 point lead over benyaya benyaya has to score points in the next race if he scores no points championship's over so we're time for championship time for championships maths i guess then yeah. it's mir miller zarco bender marquez uh mark and he's you know he's on 100 you know uh he's on 117 which isn't bad considering you know started you know three or four races in and he fell off a couple of races but to be in the top the top 10 you know seventh is not horrible uh then it's uh alicia spargaro vinales Oliveira, your top 10 and that's moto gp you want to run through i'll run through uh moto 2 qualifying real quick rich and then i'll let you take the tell us about the race sure if that's okay with you yep qualifying it was always going to be between um raul and remy to who was going to be on pole no one was really in their time zone so to speak and it was going to be a question was there. I tell you, yeah, you can talk about Fernandez in all these different ways. That kid is just plain fast on a Moto2 bike. He is incredibly quick, and it's effortless how he does it. Remy kind of takes the bike and kind of muscles it around is a bad way to say it, but he's definitely not as one with the bike as what Raul is. And man, when... Raul's on. He's fast, super fast. So he wound up taking pole. Gardner put in a good lap to be close, to be on the middle of the second row. Um, then you had DG Antonio, who looked pretty good uh, during the weekend. Then it was Bezecchi. But the surprise, I think, at qualifying has to go hands down. Cambobier, the American, the uh, reigning Moto America Superbike champion, he finished fifth and qualifying which was impressive he always said he could run with the people if he could get off with them and i he finally got a qualifying right and that was really impressive to see then it was fernandez arbolino agura arenas vietti ramirez uh Vierge, dixon and Kinet way down and then chomcat chancha and first 15 lowe's was in 16th the lowe's crashed right yeah, okay. yeah, I, I could. I yeah. thought that was the case. So he was down there in 16th, then Navarro, and then Corsi finishes everybody out. So what happened in the race, Rich? It, a bit like MotoGP, it wasn't a classic. I think we can reasonably say without too much fear of um, uh, retaliation. Um, I mean, as you say, Ralph Fernandez is just on fire all weekend long. Uh, and allied to that, with the exception of Gardner, Lowe's and Bezecchi in particular, but Joe Roberts as well, they just never really really sort of showed up to the races in the sense that you knew that they were going to do anything particularly spectacular to challenge the two guys on the uh, IO KTM bikes. So it was really always going to be about uh, Fernandez uh, and, and Gardner. So it was it was a clean start. Um, Bobier, as you said, was having a making the most of home soil uh, and that uh, supposed advantage that it gives you, although sometimes the pressure can be a problem, I suppose. But he kind of did a bit of a, a, a glory dive uh, into turn one uh, and was leading the race, I guess, for about 20 yards, maybe, Jim. I don't know if you saw it on the screens, but... Um, yeah, there was a pretty good cheer that came. There was a pretty good cheer that came up when he went 
to the front there for this that little bit. But uh, I think Bobier got an introduction to how how hard these guys fight and yeah. how fast they are because there was a couple other passes that Bobier made on on you know either either um, Bezecchi or DJ Antonio or during the race, and they immediately would come right on back. Right like, back. Yeah, yep. it was crazy. Like he did that when he went to the lead there with Fernandez because he actually passed um, Raul going into twelve on the brakes, and he, they were heading over towards thirteen, and it was like, I, it was just like, oh yeah, okay, you're waiting for it, and you're like, well, Raul's just gonna run right up the inside again. Sure enough, but Bobier learned quick because he started to do the same thing to people at the towards the end of the race. He started to. He got past. Well, guess what? He turned it turned it sharper and ran back up the inside of him and whatnot. So, it was some good racing at the beginning, uh, especially for Cam. Yeah, so he did this dive bomb on the first lap at turn one, and he kind of ended up about fifth, I think. He almost kind of outbraked himself a little bit. But one one of the things that was noticeable, certainly from a British standpoint, was that Sam Lowe's had a horrible start, and he was straight down into the mid twenties. Uh, sort of 23rd, 24th position. So it, it didn't look as if everything was quite right for him. Um, Bobier, yeah, he was into second though, um, I think two to three laps in, and he was having a quite a, quite a tasty scrap with Gardner and Digi Antonio. Um, but really all that did really was allow Raul Fernandez, a bit like with Marquez in, in the MotoGP race, just that little bit of breathing space to start clicking away the laps, just getting into his rhythm, hitting those two tens every you know, lap in, lap out. And bit by bit, you know, that gap just kept going out and out and out. Every so often, again, you wouldn't have noticed this trackside, I don't suppose, but certainly from the TV footage, just every so often you could tell that Fernandez had made a, a little error somewhere, just outbraked himself or gone a little bit wide or something because the, the gap would just come down a few tenths, but then he'd gradually build it back up again over the next few laps so it was, it was really just that kind of a race but I guess the really the the headline thing that happened you could say it was one of the headline things of all with the whole weekend with one exception which we'll come to but that was that on lap six Gardner lost it you know it's the, the that collector's item of the season Remy Gardner fell off and right in front of me right in front of you what, yeah what did all happen because at that point I think Remy had finally disposed of Bobier um, at that point because those two were sort of banging bars if you will and Remy says like okay because he, he saw Raul getting away like I didn't know that it was actually going you know like hey, he's a tenth here and then gain it back it just looked like he was just pulling away from from trackside and I think Remy got by I'm like okay Raul, Remy's gonna go have to run him down and he just left the braking just a little late and tucked that front or it bumped and tucked and it just down he went and then he gets up and he can't get that triumph to fire again and this is going to go back to the rant i had a long time ago put a starter on the triumph because nobody can bump start those things when they're warm they and I, not, not i just think that it's kind of crappy in a small low side that doesn't affect the motorcycle remy can't get the bike started again to salvage some points in his championship if you throw it away in a high side or you wad it up in the gravel trap that's your fault but this was a simple little low side that there wasn't anything wrong and he just couldn't get it started again and that's where i'm like put a starter on it so that at least you could thumb it and get it going again 
And could he have raced his way back up to second? Probably not. But at least he would have had a fighting chance. But it does make the rest of the year really interesting now. That's for sure. I, I agree with you on the starter motor thing, because at the end of the day, you know, a rideable bike, provided, you know, the marshals can take a quick look and make sure there's not oil you know, yeah, spilling out, out, of the, of it or something. Uh, sure. out of the belly Agreed. pan or whatever, yeah. fair enough. But it kind of robs the fans of that extra element of a guy, a bit like you were saying, Nakagami, who did get back on in the MotoGP race and did catch up again. And, you know, it's great to watch somebody recovering their way through the pack in that way. And I think it's a real shame when a perfectly serviceable bike like that just can't can't get going again and, and the guy just has to walk off. So, yeah, I mean, looking at it on the TV, he was a, a good foot or so, foot and a half offline again. You know, we were having this conversation uh, in the last couple of episodes about the fact that in the early parts of the races, he tends to drift offline. Now, I know it was a fairly slow corner, but nevertheless, he was coming in at an angle that, you know, slightly on the dirty part of the track, perhaps full tank of fuel still, and the, and the front just went again. You know, we've seen it nearly happen on a number of occasions, and, and this time it, it kind of bit him. Yeah, it sure did. I I feel for him, uh, but you know, it was like at that point I'm thinking, well, Mel, maybe Cam got a little racing luck, and now Cam could maybe be on a podium because he was he was definitely there. But you know, the guys that are behind him were quick and they were coming, <laughs> and yeah. he was like, well, can he hang on? And then. It was, it was, you know, Raul was basically gone at this point, and it, it was kind of like, well, where's my thought was, well, where in the world is is, is Bobier going to finish? And te, and Skylar texts me, and he says, he says, looks like Cam is running his superbike lines. I wonder if he's going to wear out his tires, and I think he may have, or he at least figured out that if you run the superbike line around Coda. Um, that doesn't work with a Moto2 bike because that leaves gaps that people are going to run up underneath of you and whatnot. So it was a good mm. education for Cam. I mean, he did finish well. You know, it was the best finish of the year. No, it was great. I mean, quite frankly, after Gardner went down... Race is over, right? <laughs> it was, well, I've written in my notes, and it's a bit of a tough watch from there on in, really. Because <laughs> you should have been there in 90-degree heat, Rich, okay? <laughs> well, I'm glad I wasn't, to be perfectly honest, in that particular case, but... Um, yeah, I mean, there were some mistakes here and there. You know, as we were saying earlier on, Kota is that kind of technical nagery track, particularly the, the last third of the track, where it's quite a lot of second and first and second gear corners. Um, Bobier, as you said, was putting up a spirited defence of his, his fourth place, and Arby Lilino was giving him trouble, but then he made a mistake and dropped back. Um, I suppose towards the end, the main interest was Augusto Fernandez doing his trick of coming from a bit further back uh, and catching up towards the end. And I think um, he came in uh, fourth in the end. Yep. Um, the only other thing of any real note, I think that happened really was, and it was a little bit of a lucky escape, was that Albert Arenas dropped it uh, coming out of the last turn, I think around about lap 12, something like that. And he went down quite hard and looked as if he might have damaged his collarbone. I haven't seen or read any more about that but he was kind of stood up in the track as bikes were going past him again which looked a little bit shaky just for a few seconds there but uh, he was able to get off track and no no great harm done other than the fact that he was holding his shoulder yeah he had that classic rider holding your your other arm is holding your other arm up under the elbow which is that yeah. sort of classic collarbone and unusually flight riders he did look he did look in quite a bit of discomfort as well mm-hmm. um as he was kind of feeling under his uh, under his leathers but uh Vietti went down but really 
that was about as far as my notes for the race went really it was really just follow follow my leader right the way through to the end and so we had Ralph Fernandez with a fairly comfortable lead but an astonishingly accomplished ride yet again yeah I think that's what four races in a row yeah I mean that's that's incredible as we say he, he looks like Jorge, Jorge Lorenzo-esque you know in his approach isn't he uh in terms of the way he can get out front and just hit a pace and stick to it uh, and not make mistakes under pressure I know he did in Saxon ring didn't he when he was chasing he was trying to chase Remy down yeah other than that, he's been pretty pretty bulletproof most of the year. So we had uh, yeah Ralph Fernandez, we had uh, Digi Antonio, pretty strong ride into second. Uh, Bezaki came home third, but fairly anonymously. So really, Augusto Fernandez fought his way through to fourth place. Cam Babier, a, a creditable fifth, which is by far and away I think his best result of the season. Oh, yeah. Completely, yeah. I mean, he hasn't even been in the top ten, and he got a fifth, which I thought you know home track advantage, right? He knows where the bumps are, so. But you gotta you gotta stick on it to to, to come home fifth. So fair play to him. Uh, Arbelino Aguirre in seventh with a good ride. Uh, Vieje. Most of these guys didn't really see them on in terms of TV coverage. But, um, Ramirez Dixon came home tenth, which was you know not too bad I suppose given some of his recent form. Canet uh, Navarro Corsi Chantra and Bo Ben Schneider bringing up the last of the points finishes anyway in fifteenth. Um, in terms of the championship. Things are getting interesting, let's say. Interesting. This is the best championship challenge that's going. Well, this is going to go down to the wire. Oh, completely. Isn't it? It's this, going to be who one. doesn't make a mistake. Yep. Uh, it's a, it's a high-pressure situation now. So we've got Gardner on 271 points. Ralph Fernandez still in second, but now is just nine points behind. So that is, you know, there's nothing nothing between them now. Uh Bezaki's in third on 206 points, but he's 65 points down on Gardner now. So, you know, he's he everybody from him downwards is out of this championship. Lowe's on 140 and Augusto Fernandez on 131 and looking like he might overtake his teammate Lowe's into into fourth place by the end of the year, which will be a little bit of a point score for him. But uh, no, it, it's very, very finely poised at the top of the table and all to play for. Yeah, I'm. This is the thing that interests me the most is what's going to happen with these guys. Gardner was very quick in San Marino, and we're going back there, so I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. Moto two is going to be what to watch because it's between these two, and Remy has to stop Raul's dominance right now. He has to. He can't let. He cannot let Raul win and him finish second because that five-point gap in two races, it would be a one-point lead to Raul. So Remy has to beat him. He, it's it's going to be it's going to come down, I think, to Valencia to a straight-up fight. Whoever finishes in front of the other is going to be world champion. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah. I really wanted Remy to win the title. Um, I think it'd be great just for him I, because he's done so much of the donkey work he spent so much time in moto three and you know and in moto two never really got a good bike he got his chance he kind of reached out grabbed it he's done so well on that bike he's going to go to moto gp where i think he needs to be yet there's this other kid who's a rookie to the class who shows up and just is man is every bit his rival his enemy arch enemy <laughs> and these two are going to be on moto gp bikes next year together wow you know fireworks are a coming people so who do you think is going to win it, Jim? If you had to put Ooh. 
What's the money, Dane? Who's your money on? Very early in the year, my money was very heavily on Remy. Mm. I I did not see the Fernandez thing coming. I I I I do think with Aussie grit, I think Remy wins it, but he wins it by a point. Mm. It's, just, a... it's it's going to be that close. And it yep. could easily swing the other way, and Raul could beat him by two. I mean, it's it just it's just going to be that that tight. Either one, in my opinion, is a deserved champion. They have made this championship excellent because most of the time we don't even really talk about this championship, and they've they've made it a talking point. They are the talking point in the championships, and uh, the racing between those two has been spectacular. So either one of them winning it would be. Um, phenomenal. I would just be gutted if Remy didn't win it. So I'm I'm pulling for Remy. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you. And what I find fascinating about this particular one as well is that they are quite noticeably different riders in their style. Mm-hmm. You know, as we say, Fernandez has this kind of silky smooth 250 kind of almost uh, style, whereas Remy is very much the kind of the the, the dirt track guy hanging it out. It does make you wonder a little bit that if one or other, if, if both of them are pushing, Remy's style probably lends itself to to crashing under pressure. See, I feel I I think of that this I think it the other way, I, because I think with Remy's style with the back end out sliding, if you get to a track where the tires aren't as good or something weird happens, Remy is going to be better with that. You style. can ride around it. Yeah, he can ride yeah. around it more yeah. than what Raul could but i don't you know look this isn't um a a criticism of michelin and the problems that people have said that they're having with tires but dunlap has really had some amazing tires like you really don't hear about anybody getting a bad tire at all they've been phenomenal as long as they've been a part of moto to to supply you know good tires i think we could say that them having changed that one front uh, that one year caused Bisecki to go nowhere, uh, you know, as a leading a championship, and it just disappeared. And Bastianini won it because he couldn't ride on those tires, so they made a mistake, but that's okay. But it's 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 too. Well, the best part about it is it's going to be equal tires, equal frames, equal team because they are teammates. It's not going to be like Lowe's on a Mark VDS trying to battle the might of IO. It just isn't going to be like that. It's going to be. I'm so looking forward to watching this play out. Yeah, me too. It's, it's either going to be tiny margins or, or big mistakes by one or other of them, and who, who knows how it's going to go, but it's going to be fascinating to see what happens over the next three three rounds. Yep. And with that, why don't we go to the big race of the other week, the uh, Moto3 <laughs> race, which is, yeah, you've all seen it. You know what happened, but let's talk about it. Um, let's First, I'm going to talk about... Um, Acosta's riding. He looked much more comfortable on the motorcycle this time. You could just see it in his in his lines, his approach, how he did things. I wanted to try to look at how he rides and see if I could figure out some something that he's doing with it. Um, I st- took a lot of time standing at, at 12 uh, through the S's at 5, um, some in, into 19 as well to see how what he's doing with it. And I think he has almost a hybrid dirt track street stunt rider style now let me try to explain um as he goes into the corner he waits up and waits the front end 
creating the back to be light, kind of like uh, the stunt riders do when they go to a stoppie. And he, he doesn't really pick the back end up off the ground, but he lightens it up enough that he can sort of position the motorcycle and pivot the back around the front, which is how he rides those tight lines where everybody else is now going out. So he uses it as a way to sort of square the corner. It's a very unique style that he has. It isn't just riding on the front. It's riding the front hard so that the rear does something for him on a bike that doesn't have enough power to really, well, they do. I mean, you can obviously high side yourself off the thing, but he does it in a way that's really different to anybody else. Uh, I'm looking forward to see what he does on a Moto2 bike because I think maybe we might see a little more sideways kind of a style out of him. And I would, I would just so love like Simon Crafer to actually break down his riding um, because from what I see, it's really different and really unique. It's, it's sort of in, it's sort of as different as Marquez when he came to MotoGP and it's sort of that same thing, only it's a little more subtle. It's not quite as flash because Marquez would have the front end fold it and then bring it back. He's doing something in a more controlled, elegant way. And uh, it's, it's natural, I think, isn't it? It's it not, is. Not, it's very natural. It's There's something a, that he's figured out. It's kind yeah. of something that's intuitive to him. It, he, there was a video. I, I don't remember where I found it, but it was him on a 600 um, in a parking lot doing figure eights around cones. And you and it's like I watched that and then I went to see him do it. And he rides the same way, very hard on the front. The back end's light and he just spins it around the cone and he's just doing these figure eights and uh, you know so what he's doing is just very natural very fluid with him and that's one of the things i think is really neat is just how fluid he is there's nothing rushed with what he does it's all very slow it's very methodical it's very pre predictable what he's doing and it's, it's fascinating to watch him live do it because there you can pick up a lot more a little detail little nuance that's there when you're standing beside the track I haven't actually had an opportunity to to do this, but my my feeling with him is that where he is different is on the way into the apex, and then yes, very much so. Once the apex has been hit, on the way out, his his style is pretty conventional with everybody else. So I think what would be interesting for somebody much cleverer than me to do would be to put up two stills um, pre apex of Acosta and say, let's say Garcia, just as an example to see their body position on the bike. I'm, I'm holding my hands up, listeners, which is great for podcasts and radio. <laughs> um, uh, to see their body positions on the way into the apex and then and then have a second set of side-by-side -side photos on their way out. And I think on the way in, the pictures would look very, very different. And on the way out, they would look quite similar in terms of positioning on the bike. And there is something that he does. It, as you say, it's all very natural and fluid. And yet he he transitions from that upright stance into the conventional hanging right off the bike stance very quickly at the point of the apex, I think. And as you say, he has that upright kind of neck out style, Colin Edwards-y kind of look style to load up that front end and to pivot the rear around. But by the time he's hit the apex and then he's through, he's fully hanging off the bike and, and doing it pretty much like everybody else does. And that is clearly some, that is how he's just managing to, with the exception of Aragon, let's, let's say, do things with the front end of the bike that other people haven't seemingly been able to do. Yeah, it's, it is amazing to watch, that's for sure. But it's clearly a natural, just a natural gift that he has. It won't necessarily translate to the bigger bike. It may so not. It's going to be interesting to see. 
So before we get to qualifying, um, Garcia, he had a crash in the wet uh, before I had gotten there and had went into the barriers. He wound up with a hematoma on his kidney, which I asked the doctor of Motopod, my wife, if that meant a bruised kidney. She goes, yes. <laughs> so yep. he was not fit to ride. So he was not there. Um, so um, basically the gas gas team was looking at uh, Guevara for their main rider to see what was going on. But Juan Masia looked really good to, and good enough to have pole. Fagia, because it's a long straightaway, the Leopard Hondas are really fast. You know, that's one of the, thing, the other thing that you don't recognize. The Leopard Hondas have a whole lot more green in them than you think. They, they, like, it looks more blue on TV to me, but it's actually mm. a little more greenish. And then Petronas bikes have a lot more blue in it where they look a little more green on TVs. It was, that's so, true. That's it's just true, a little yeah. weird thing that is like, kind of there. Um, Alcoba was then third on the grid. Guevara had a great qualifying to be fourth. Then you had Artigas. Again, we were talking, Artigas looks good, has been looking good. Then Suzuki, Salach, Mino, Anchu, uh, McPhee, Finati, Nepa, Antonelli, Suzuki. Acosta would be 15th on the grid, which I didn't think he would be that slow in qualifying, but he was. And then you had Felon, Bender, and um, Alberto Sura, the 16th man, from that second qualifying session. I mean, he was fast enough to get into the fast 14 or whatever, or fast, yeah, what do they have, fast 12? And then they add four from the first session. So he didn't have to go through the first session, but he definitely didn't perform as well as I thought he was going to. He was definitely riding with Massey a lot, and they were helping each other on the long straightaway. They were taking turns with the draft and whatnot. So I don't know if it was just one of those things where he ran out of time, didn't get a time drive or, or whatever. But, I, you know, the race is where everything really, really happens. Uh, when the race started, it was Guevara who had gotten out front at the beginning. I think, like, McPhee was – or not McPhee, but Fagia was with him. Masia was with him at the front as well. And I, basically those guys were out front, and it was – things were going by pretty quickly – but it kind of stabilized in a Guevara, Masia uh, kind of a group there at the front. And then you could kind of throw in like Alcoba behind that. And, and you had Mino in there too. And really the person who was going up now was like Masia. Like he would go towards the front. He'd kind of go backwards a little bit with the draft as they were going in and out of the uh, back straightaway there. But what happened was we had 13 or 14 laps left to go. Or I think 13, 12 maybe. 12 laps to go. And you had Slatch, who was in the lead group as well. He high sides coming out of turn 11 onto the back straightaway. It was a nasty high side, which was way too far down the track for, for us to see what had gone on. Um, other than we could see some people running out to attend to it to a motorcycle. And they showed it on the big screen. You see, well, like, oh, it was a high side. And then he looked like he was, at first I thought he might have been knocked cold a little bit. Um, but he really, I don't think he was, because he kind of sat back up. But then he laid back down on the track, and he was in the, the – the Coda has, like, the curbing. Then they have a, a large section of paint, and then you kind of have the, the grass or gravel uh, beyond that. And he was laying right there at that paint, so he was, he was near the near the exit of, the, of that turn. And they suddenly – like, they started to bring out the, the – what we could see was the big um, medical bags or the, you know uh, – The doctor cushion. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, I didn't know what they were, but, yeah, they were there. And I'm like, well, they're going to have to do something because we, we can't have medical people attending 
with these guys going by real fast. So I think they had gotten through the end of the S's. They were at like turn seven or eight when they red flagged the race and everybody went by. When the guys got through that turn, you could see them carrying Slatch off in a stretcher, which I was, whoa, okay. That was a little bit more than what I thought for that kind of a high side there. But he either just got the wind really knocked out of him and they kind of got wanted to get him on a stretcher because they were trying to get him away so that if the bikes were going to come racing through or not, you know, I think it might've been one of those kind of a things or it was mm. just a precautionary tale. Later on, he was up walking. So I think he was just really got the wind knocked out of him. I think, he just I think that's started, what it was. Yeah. I think he just yeah. came down on his back really hard and just slammed. Um, that crash, it ripped the glove off of his hand. If you watch it, there's a glove bouncing and then he's there. So yeah. like, woo, there, that was, you know, whatever happened was really violent, really happened quick. So we sat around waiting to figure out what they were going to do and the, the time's ticking and whatnot. So I, I knew they were going to restart it and they said, okay, we're going to have like a five lap dash for the cash. It's like, ooh, this is going to be really brutal because these guys were going to go nutso because if you get five laps, it's just going to be pure chaos and this is just going to be the, a great race so they lined them they lined them up as they had finished uh prior one lap prior to the red flag and they put everybody onto the onto the grid again and i guess mcphee and um bender had kind of came through the pack from their way down starting space where they were like in the first couple of rows when they reset it all and they took back off and guevara got back out front again and he was there with masia fagia there and then it was you had Bender who was going crazy because it's a five lap dash. McPhee was right there with him going in it. Anchu was in the mix because he had a really sharp start and he gained four or five spots I think on the on the restart going into turn one. And then as they went, you know, he got his elbows out going through the S's. It looked like, and you know, they hit the back straightaway and it was just people everywhere whipping around and. You know, here come here come Acosta from like tenth. He came up and he was like fifth, and then they settle it back out and they would swing it all around. It would just be completely different, and it's just you didn't know where to watch. You just knew you had to watch the front of the front of the bikes. And they they had had uh, two laps had been complete, and uh, they're running the two laps had been complete. So it was like this: there was three to go, and here comes uh, Guevara into turn twelve. And he rides straight off. And I'm like, oh, man, he must have left his braking way late. But that's kind of odd. I mean, I, I've seen people do that if you're in the draft because you're, you're you're not expecting that big of a toe or something. And I thought, wow, dude, that was a hard hard luck break there for Guevara. But he rode back on again. I'm like, okay, okay, this is he's not too bad. He's still got a shot because you have that really long straightaway. But he d- cruised back to the pits. And as he came past us, he was just beating on the tank and on the handlebar. And I'm like... Well, the bike doesn't sound like it's broken, but something is amiss, and I'm not sure what. So I kind of diverted my attention from what was going on on the track to watching Gravera ride by. And then he goes into the pitch, and you can see him go down the, the pit lane, and he's jumping up and down the bike, and the whole bike's just rebounding back up very quickly. Like, like literally, like there was no rebound in the bike whatsoever. Um, he pushes on the back seat of the bike, and you can tell it just springs right back up, which is not what you want at all. And any circumstance, especially on the track that's that bumpy, I don't mm. know what broke. I I assume a rebound rod broke or a seal broke in it from the vibration, the beating that they were taking from the track. Maybe I don't know exactly why, but that was definitely what was broke. And then he gets off the bike and throws his toys out of the pram. He went bonkers. I felt sorry for the kid, and 
I've always been this way. And maybe it's because of how I was brought up. Because my dad told me, whatever you do, you don't kick the bike, you don't kick the chair, you don't throw a helmet. If you want to, go climb in the back of the van, lose your shit, and come back out. And then we're going to figure out how we're going to fix this bike or make a change. And he just went bonkers in there. And he had a great run going. So he's sitting in the chair. His race is done. And they're still racing. Uh, I think, you know, Mino had been in the front there somewhere, but it was coming down to you had like, uh, I can't even remember who was actually leading going down the back straightaway in there. But all of a sudden, we're, staying, we're looking down the track and all of a sudden I see this big object fly up into the air. And I thought, oh my God, it's a, it's a rider. It's a, it's, a, it's a human. And I thought it might have been like Alcoba because it was, it was black. And I thought, oh, it's Alcoba. Oh my God, what? How do you fall and go that high on the backstretch? Like, I, I couldn't comprehend what had happened. But then I realized there must have been, I realized somebody must have fallen off because I could see the bike scatter in that big way that bikes do when you're, they're trying to get away from things. And then you could hear sort of the people who were in the grandstand at 12. By this time, the noise kind of came to us as they're all going, ah! because of what was going on. And we didn't really know at first. And then we watching the screens, I whipped my phone out to try to watch it to see what was going on because I had, you know, commentary. Because, like I said, the, the commentary runs maybe 15 seconds behind. And so I was like, oh, oh my God, oh, oh, oh. And they're just going crazy. I'm like, oh, this must have been brutal. This is bad. And I, my heart just sank because then I was able to see what had happened where Anshu had moved over me and he clips Mino. And Mino goes down, Alcoba then runs over the bike. So what I had thought was a person was actually um, Alcoba's fairing off of his bike that had flown up. He flies 150 feet or more, Lance slams to the ground, and then Acosta, because that's the next thing I did, is I knew Acosta was in that mix somewhere. I was looking for his KTM to come through, and I'm like, nudging my buddy, Acosta's not there, Acosta's not there, Acosta's not there. And I was scared that Acosta had, once I'd seen where he flew, and then he smashes his own body into the guardrail, the armco on the outside, I thought, oh shit. I, I thought, God, no, not another one, please, no. Not, not another, because I was fearing paralyzation at the best i was thinking right um he's going to be alive but maybe paralyzed from the waist down because it's going to that impact i thought had to have broken his back i mean i i i, I feared the worst is where i guess i'm saying you know i don't want to mm. sound like some vulture who's excited about the you know this stuff but we already have lost three riders this year in the small classes we don't need another one to be lost in this class and thank the Lord, the next shot is all three of them standing up and walking away. And I just could not believe what I had seen. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 you know, it was Anchu who moved over as they like to bend over and, you know, move around, you know, and break that toe. I think Anchu thought he was clear. He wasn't. And it's right at a point when they sort of crest that little hill in the back straightaway. And Mino is bent over to sort of complete the kink that's there. Because the back straightaway is not straight at Coda. And I think it was a weird combination of 
going over that hump, the bike's going to be a little lighter than what it would be normally. Being over on the side of the tire with just a little less contact than what maybe is really there on that tire. And that little bit of a nudge from Anchu was enough to just take the front end out from underneath of Mino, and down he went. And then the chaos ensued. How did you see it when you watched it, Rich? Because I was, I was done. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I was on my way back from Donington, and I think you you sent me a, an email to say, you know, uh, dodge the bullet or or something, whatever your yeah. your email said. And so I I knew something pretty major was gonna. Uh, unfold as I started watching the coverage. I, it's it's hard to know where to start with all of this, really, um, yeah. and where where we go ultimately with this. Uh, back on episode triple six, uh, we were having a long discussion about these issues. Right. Since then, um, yeah, Dean Berta Vinales has has been killed. Right. I mean, you can say that all of these accidents are freak accidents, but. You know, when they start to happen as regularly as they're happening, it, it tells you something's going on. And I mean, in one respect, so, so I watched it on the TV. I think it was slightly different to what you were saying. So Onchu came past, and I think he drafted past Alcoba, and I think it was Alcoba that he clipped, and Alcoba okay. went down, and it was Mino. Yeah, then Mino rode over. That's right. You're right. The first You're right. One to take You're to right. The air. And then My, I got it split, backwards. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. And then a split second later, Acosta hits, I'm not sure who whose bike i mean thankfully acosta did not hit hit you know Mino or alcoba was kind of inverted commas lucky because he went down but the bike was kind of in front of him yes so he was kind of sliding along the ground as if he was on the bike but the bike was in front. so Mino hit the bike and not alcoba because if they'd been the other way around that would have been obviously a different a different yeah. outcome outcome i don't uh, want to think about <laughs> quite in all of the melee uh, and again i've watched it a couple of times but uh, who Acosta hit, I don't know, but I mean, Acosta by far and away flew. I mean, it looked like he was never going to come down at one point. I mean, it was absolutely shocking, and he actually went over the handlebars. It was holding on to it. He was still holding on to the handlebars. Yeah, from what but, I saw, I mean, of it, it was it was hideous. And then, I mean, thank goodness he didn't come down on the with his body on the barrier because yeah. I mean he would have been bent in, you know, mm-hmm. split off. You know that that would have been a you know appalling as it was he hit the barrier but i suppose he'd slowed down a little bit and he hit it at an angle that meant he kind of deflected off it more than anything else and he rolled which was the thing that really helped he kind of went on his back and yeah. he got one roll to get sort of back to his back and where all that big hump padding is and kind of grazed it if you will but still yeah. that was a that's an immovable object that he wound up hitting Put it put it this way: there was no sponsor markings left on the back of his leathers at any point. Everything was gone, you know. So you know, okay, fair enough. The safety equipment stood up, did its job, and you know that would have been a different outcome if that accident had happened, say, twenty years ago, for example. Just even ten. Pro- probably so. Yeah, because airbags weren't around, you know, at that stage ten years ago. So well, maybe they were. Was it two thousand two? Was the first airbag that Dainese made in a suit? Maybe. Okay. But 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 still, you know, it doesn't matter. Th- things have come on significantly in the last few years. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know what speed the bikes would have been doing when Alcoba and and Onchu touched each other. I'm guessing probably about 140. But the point is, as soon as a bike goes airborne, it accelerates because there's no friction anymore. So those guys, you know, Mino, I have to say, just jumping forward a little bit, the guys get back to the pits. 
you've got Mino sitting in the pits looking a little bit like Rossi did in Austria last year. You know, mm-hmm. ghost face, white, thinking, you know, oh, I knew he swore badly then. But, uh, you know, you could tell what he was thinking. He knew that he'd come close. And then Alcoba's joking around, kind of laughing. And then jumps up and goes, does TV for the uh, yeah. for Spanish TV. Yeah. Out in the pit lane. And I, I thought about this. For one, I'm thinking that Alcoba is the coolest customer that exists. Like he must have ice water in his veins. I don't think anything rattles the kid. But I also thought that he may have purposefully jumped up and walked out and did a thumbs up and waved to Spanish TV because I'm pretty sure his parents weren't there and they were maybe in Spain. I don't know that to be true. I don't know if that's what he's thinking, but if he is, that shows some amazing composure for a 17 year old to understand that, you know, everybody back home, let's just say family back home would be wondering about him. And so I'm just going to walk out and say, Hey, and he had a smile on his face and it was like nothing happened. Me, I'd have to go see a psychiatrist and I'd have been like Nino with a thousand yard stare and, I would have needed new leathers, a new under, new pair of underwear, and you know, I'd have been vomiting into things. Yeah, I'd have been vomiting into a bucket out the back. You, you know, after something like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, I just quite unbelievable. I mean, but we mustn't make light of the seriousness no, of the accident. No. And uh, I mean, I suppose we should get onto the fact that Onchu's been given a, a two race ban. Yep. As, as a result of that, and you know what? I don't think it would have mattered who did it. They were getting a two-race ban anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he as you said, he, he drafted and then he moved across and he wasn't far enough in front. But I, I don't know if you've been looking at some of the social media feeds in the last couple of days, but there are umpteen shots, on-bike shots of all sorts of different Moto3 riders chopping, you know, left and right. And we see it in every race, you, you know, and okay, Onchi's going to cop it with a two-race ban on this one. But as you say, it could have been anybody because uh, uh, everybody does it. He unfortunately is the person who's going to bear the brunt of the penalty for something that everybody does because that one happened to create a bad situation that could have been really bad. And they talked to like Marquez and he said, yeah, that penalty is warranted. What uh, I think Miller said the same thing. What Rossi said, Moto3 is out of control. That's Valentino, man. I mean... Mm. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I'll use an, I use an analogy. He's like the godfather of, of MotoGP, right? He's the one who oversees all. When, when Rossi speaks, everybody listens. I mean, and for Rossi to say it's out of control, that's a huge, huge statement by a man who, I think, has always been very cautious with what he says, how he says it. And when he says it, especially when it pertains to the sport he loves. And that's a really huge condemnation from him, I think. Or I'm perceiving it that way. Your thoughts? Well, I can't help but feel there's a, a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black on, on that one. With all I, of the... I will not disagree with you. Um... I will not disagree with you. I mean, it is a fact, and this goes back to the discussion we were having a few episodes ago and much of the discussion that you can see on social media on this uh, whole topic, which is that, you know, the younger the riders are, 
the less imagination they have as to what could go wrong and the consequences of actions. Not all of them, but let's say many of them. And the problem with race bans is that they're retroactive. You know, they don't change what has, has happened. Now, equally, I don't subscribe to the view that you sit these guys down and, and treat them like little children and say, you must not do this and you must not do that, because the reality is they're racers. And as soon as the light goes green, they're out there to win. So... There are some other, I think, structural issues with the way these smaller classes are, are set up in terms of machinery and talent levels and so on. And, and to some extent, the size of the grids that are competing that probably would be better addressed to try and make some inroads into solving the problem. And as we said before, you, you'll never solve the problem completely because this is a dangerous sport. You can make it safer, but you can't make it safe. So how do you mitigate these problems? Now, I personally subscribe to, to an idea which is if you have let's say and i'm not quite sure how many competitors there are in moto 3 but let, let's say if there were 40 40 riders i don't think there's quite as many as that but let's just say for argument's sake that there were i i wonder if we're getting to the stage where you need kind of like an an a and a b set so if you have ever watched for example the ulster grand prix which is one of the irish road races they have basically have two waves of riders that go off. They have the, 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 the fast, say, top 12 to 15 or something. They go, and then about 20 seconds later, the second wave goes. Oh, Daytona 200 was that way for motorcycles. Okay. Yes. So I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of break up the packs a bit, and if somebody goes down, there aren't as many bikes in the immediate vicinity that might you know, collide either with a bike or with a, with a rider. So that's one potential way that you might look to to address it. And what's neat about that is that if, if for example, somebody's hanging around on the racing line through qualifying and they cop a penalty, well, you can put them into the B into the B wave, you know, because that sets them back, and and it's harder to score points from back there, you know. So it is a it is a I think more of a penalty. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's not a total solution. Nothing is a total solution unless you decide to wrap them up completely in cotton wool and let them only go 20 miles an hour. You, you know, I, there is no solution to this problem, but there is a problem. And we've seen it with, with three fatalities and a, several other serious crashes, not least of which was obviously the one that we've just been describing at Austin, which is almost miraculous that nobody was seriously injured or, or worse. It's like, it's like Austria. Everybody walked away yes. from something that could have been horrendous um yeah. i do hope that freddie spencer and the stewards set these guys down and have a long long talk about what they did and it's not dennis on problem it's all of them it's a problem i like your idea of a two-wave start i've seen that in club racing too now that i stop thinking about it because I've, I've i've been in that second wave so so um it that is a good way to get maybe your top 10 qualifiers away and have a 10 rider pack i i like it i like it you know you guys should tell us if you like it or not too because i think it's a fabulous idea um so you know tell us www or tell us uh, email motopod motopodcast.com um, so I, I don't think they're going to like it because even a smaller team that isn't as good, they're going to say, well, we don't get our coverage. We don't get our sponsors noticed. You give us no chance of winning. Well, 
if you had a chance of winning, you would have qualified in the top 10. Because and then what will happen is everyone will point to the fact that Acosta started in pit lane and won in Qatar. Well, see, if you go to, you know, you know where the teams are going to go with this one. I, yeah. I still fabulous it's not a solution. It's just it's a idea fabulous to... idea. It's a great outside the box thinking that I love about it. I also think that they should do um, with the gearboxes. Give them a set set of ratios that you're not dropping more than like say ten kilometers per hour or something. You know, pick pick something, whatever, and mandate that they run that specific set of gearboxes. I, I just think that's a better way to go because you can start to break it up. Um, you know, with that because you're not going to be able to hang on to the draft per se. Mm. Yeah, there's there's no solution to this that anyone's going to like or think about or whatever, but. Another um, a great idea, not my idea. Uh, I don't I don't know quite whose idea this was, but I heard it on another podcast a um, couple of days ago, which was that, uh, and it's a kind of it's a technology thing. So, with with for example the um, the sensors in in the suits with the airbag systems that they have now, those systems react in nanoseconds to knowing that a crash is happening now i don't understand you know the algorithms and the software and so on that those systems work off but but clearly a, a, an electrical signal is sent from that airbag system in the suit to say i need to inflate it, it's not beyond the bounds of technological possibility so this person was saying uh, the other day that that signal could equally manifest itself as a big red light on the dashboard of every other bike to say somebody's just fallen, somebody's just fallen off. So they have the digital displays on the bikes, as we know, they can read text messages from the pits and from the race directors and so on. So there's no reason why that whole dashboard couldn't go red as a warning, right? Which is triggered as soon as somebody's airbag goes off to say somebody's just crashed. So it's it kind of it's like a super yellow flag in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm with you. I'm with you. Slow down. You know, so the the wave yellow says to a rider, you should slow down, which is why, you know, the whole yellow flag thing is so contentious at the moment, because people don't slow down. They just assume that they can carry on at the speed that they were going. So that would potentially be a technological solution just to buy a few milliseconds so that, you know, if there's somebody prostate in, in the middle of a track, there's just that little bit of opportunity for the other riders coming down the track to know that they might need to avoid something or hit the brakes or, or, or whatever. So there are you know, there are different ways that this problem can be approached. What I find a bit distressing is that with, you know, the, the incidents, we don't need to go over them again, but the, the serious incidents and losses that we've seen so far this year, so far, there appears to be very little other than a bit of finger wagging and your penalty coming from the governing body. Yeah. And I find that very upsetting, really, because as I said to you um, before I saw the race on Sunday and you'd, you'd sort of forewarn me that there was there was a big incident, you, you know, Having seen it, I said, you know, had that gone seriously wrong, I think at this point we'd be in an existential crisis with the sport because I think at that point you're into kind of Senna Imola 94 territory where mm. people mm -hmm. are seriously questioning whether this can even go on anymore. It, it gets that serious, you know, and um, I just it would implore Dorna and the FIM and Erta or whoever it needs to be to, to really start to launch some independent studies to try and understand what's going on and, and what they can do about it. Yep. I agree. I mean, I think we've, I think we kind of covered that and we're never going to come up with, with a solution. So let's actually go to what happens next after this. The question was whether the race is going to restart again. It never did. And it, one of the, it never did. And 
I think it was more because there was a time issue. There wasn't time to restart everybody, put them on the track, run Moto2, run MotoGP, and keep in time with the satellite and the viewing and everything else. There were flights that people had to catch. Simon Crafar mentioned that. I did not even think about people trying to get out of the track because there was like a couple of weeks before we ever get to Mazana. So, um, but logistically trying to get your entire team rebooked, reticketed onto another flight is difficult unto itself. Um, you know, these guys are ready to pack up, get on and get back to Europe to their home bases. So they had a meeting of all of the, of one representative from each of the individual teams to decide what they were going to do. And what the way it came out is they declared the race complete, but it was complete after the first red flag. So the second race never actually really took place. Now that stirred up some controversies to like, well, that isn't where it is because McPhee thought he should have won because I think McPhee was actually leading at the time. Foggia mm. was in the mix or they're close to it, but it meant by doing it that way that Ethan Guevara won the race. After having thrown all of his toys out of the pram, he gets a big happy face as he wins his first MotoGP race, his first MotoGP podium. Fascinating. Foggia would get second, McPhee would be third, so from winning to going to third, but McPhee was still happy, he's on the podium, which was great. Then Masia, Anshu would then get fifth, Alcoba would be sixth, seventh would be Bender, eighth Acosta, so Acosta would get points, and he would he would uh, gain a little bit on Garcia, but Foggia is now looking like the main title rival, we'll get on that here in a second. And the rest of the list runs out from there um, to finish the top 15. It was uh, Suzuki, Mino, Nepa, Fanati, Sasaki, Artigas, Antonelli, and Antonelli being the 15th guy on the grid. Now, the big thing was, if you want to know, they made the right decision, okay? Because in the rule book, it says if three or less laps complete it, the race is restarted from the beginning, but with one lap le less. If it is not possible to restart the race, the competition is canceled and no points are given. Well, we hadn't finished three laps. We were we still had three laps to go. That lap hadn't been completely done yet because they would have to, you know, they were heading to that point. Obviously, the track went red instantaneously when that happened. So, therefore, that whole race that they ran from the restart didn't technically happen. According to the rule book in MotoGP, that race didn't exist. Now, the question then became, if that race didn't exist, then did the first race exist? Mm, yeah, because they had completed more than three laps. So yeah, it would be okay. it would be able, you could declare that a race and determine the results based off of that previous finish, which is what I think Erda and the FIM were all talking about there because everybody kind of came out of that meeting of the minds if you will pretty happy with what the decision was made i think a lot of people were thankful that nobody was hurt any worse than they were i think everybody was thankful that they were able to do that i think everyone thought you know look man it's a hot day we can, if we try to go at the end of the day after the MotoGP race, that's a satellite timing issue. That's a team's getting out of here issue. Nobody wants to, like, I think everybody wants to go home and everybody wants to get away from that track and get away from Coda, all the bumps and everything. It's like, let's just get out of here. And that's what they did. So good on them for at least giving us a race and some points and seeing where we are. 
And as we get on to the championship standings with this one, Acosta has now got 218 points. Foggia is on 188. He is only 30 points ahead. Three rounds left. At this rate, the way that Acosta has been losing points and the way that Foggia has been gaining points, Foggia will probably finish about two points behind Acosta in here. Um, it's going to be crazy. Uh, this is another one that's going to be good. It's just because I think Moto3 is so unpredictable. It's so hard to to say that, you know, there's the odd race where Fanati runs away. I don't think that's going to happen. I, uh, you know, Acosta did not ride well at Mazzano the first time. He's got a chance to go back and maybe do something better. Yeah. Uh, he definitely was running really good in um, Portugal because he won that race, if I remember correctly, uh, when we were there the first, first time. So he knows that track and is going well there. So I think he'll do really well there, hopefully. And maybe he might extend his points lead or whatever. Uh, but Foggia goes well there, too, because that was Foggia's first podium of the season. So maybe call that a draw. And then you got the tiebreaker that's going to be Valencia. And nobody really ever knows what's going to happen there. Yeah, It could be a rain race. It could be anything. Uh, well, in November, every, yeah. every chance it will be wet. Mm. Every chance it'll be wet. So who knows what kind of crazy is going to happen. But that's where we are. Anything else, Rich? Well, yeah, as you say, just I think everybody was just happy to let sleeping dogs lie, you know, with the eventual outcome of the race result uh, and just get the hell out of there. And bearing in mind what had happened in Jerez the week before, yeah. you know, and, and the the scale of that accident, I think, as you say, Jim, I think everybody was just pleased to wipe their brows and breathe a sigh of relief and, yeah, just let get to the next race. Yep, let's just get on with it and be done, so... I think that's the show. I think we need to get out of here. We've gone on for this is a long one, folks. <laughs> Sorry, but there was yep. so much to talk about, and uh, you know, I wanted you guys to kind of have a perspective of how I felt being back at Coda, being back at the races for the first time. It's definitely a whole lot different than watching it on TV and taking notes and and doing the show and whatnot. So, um, be sure to comment on the show, guys. Uh, if you like Rich's idea, the the two way starts in Moto Three, let us know. Uh, right in. Just send an email to motopod at motopodcast.com. Uh, they'll go to all the hosts. I'm sure everybody will want to chime in on that one because it's a pretty damn good idea. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm at motorgv on Instagram and Twitter. Rich, where are you in the World Wide Webs? Uh, just at Richard Jarrett uh, on Twitter. Um, so I don't have many followers still. So please, everybody that's listening, uh, give me a follow and then you'll pick up my increasing tweet activity. <laughs> so. Oh, come on, people. Give the man some love, okay? It's Richard Jowitt, J-O-W-I-T-T, guys, in case you're wondering how that one's spelled. So we're going to go with a couple-week break. Um, I think I could use a little downtime. I don't know about you, Rich, but we've got some stuff in the, in the background that we're working on, uh, some stuff I think that would be really good, really pertinent information. I know Rich has got some things cooking, so hopefully we'll have some stuff, uh, maybe have a show to fill the void. Uh, not making any promises here, guys. But with that, I think we're going to get on out of here, Rich, and call it a night. Everybody, ride safe. See ya.